What does your wife think of you paying for another woman's hotel room? Robin Suzman knows that Captain de Villiers uses his own money to bankroll her visits to Johannesburg. The station's budget would never stretch this far. She doesn't mind, he lies. In other words, she doesn't know, thinks Suzman. You'd better come in. She steps aside, and de Villiers walks into the sparsely furnished room. There's only one chair, so he decides to stand. I assume the case is complicated, says Suzman, or high profile. He had refused to tell her what it was over the phone, which he'd never done before. Usually, she would stay well away, but they'd had a good run of luck solving the last few problem cases, and she could do with a victory in her life. The captain hesitates. Spit it out, devil, she says. I know it's a case I wouldn't have agreed to, or you would have told me what it was on the phone. I know you'll get angry, but bear with me, says de Villiers. His discomfort is evident. He has new sweat stains under his arms, and he keeps flicking the inside of his wedding ring with his thumb. Robin purses her lips. Maybe this would be the case to ruin their run of recent successes. Still, it had come at a good time. The sheep were freshly sheared, and it would be a quiet week on the farm. A girl is missing, he says slowly, cautiously, as if waiting for Susman to explode. Her expression of mild amusement melts off her face. A girl? Do you mean a child? Devil rubs his stubble. Fifteen years old. Anger rises and flares on Susman's cheeks. Damn you, de Villiers. I know, he says. I know. It was a huge risk asking you to come out. Damn you, she says again, this time through gritted teeth. I trusted you. She feels like tearing up the room, breaking something, punching de Villiers in his worried, crumpled face. There's something else, he says. Suzman stands there, in the middle of the hotel room, seething. No, she says. No, I'm going home. She's 15 years old, Suzman. Would you have me wait for her next birthday to ask for your help? Don't be ridiculous. I'm not the one being ridiculous, he says, and it stings as it leaves his mouth. It burns because it's not true and it's not fair, but he'll do what it takes to keep her on the case. You don't understand anything, her eyes are shining. Explain it to me, Devil says. I want to make this as easy on you as possible. Acid drips from her laugh. You want to make it easy on me? She fights the urge to upend the dresser, kick the coffee table, smash the small glass mirror framed in wood. She feels fury in every molecule of her body. I want you to tell me how it feels. No, says Susman. I want to... What? She demands, her voice stony. I want to share your pain, he says, and I want you to share mine. Was he saying what she thought he was saying? He was telling her he loved her. She shakes her head. We're not doing this. De Villiers is about to say something else then changes his mind. You need to understand, she says. You need to understand that I have to protect myself. Of course, he says. Part of protecting myself is having boundaries. Yes, no missing children, no dead children, no children, full stop. I know, he murmurs, I know the rules. And yet, here I stand in a hotel room in a city I detest, I can explain. Do you want me? She asks, and Devil breaks eye contact. 
Do you want me around to work cases when you need me? Then I need to be able to function, devil. I need to be able to think clearly. Working with children unravels me. You know that. You know me. De Villiers rubs his face again. It's my niece. Susman blinks at him uncomprehendingly, as if he had just spoken in a foreign language. The missing girl, Devil says. It's my niece. You don't have a niece, says Susman. You're an only child. That's what I tell people. Now she's a child and a relative? That's two reasons to stay away from this case. That's the difference between you and me, says de Villiers. I think that's two reasons to work harder than ever. Susman snatches her handbag. On her way out, she slams the hotel door. Susman refuses to go into the station, so they head to a coffee shop. She doesn't feel like seeing the friendly faces there, doesn't feel like returning empty smiles. She hasn't yet decided if she's working the case or not. So, says Robin, as she stirs her flat white, let me guess, you have an evil twin. De Villiers laughs, and it diffuses some of the tension between them. Not quite, he says. Of the two of us, I'm the evil one. And we're not twins, just brothers. You're the evil one, she muses. The man didn't have a wicked bone in his body, which is probably why his nickname had stuck like Lou. She hadn't known him in his pre-devil days. He's conservative, religious, strict with the kids. Too strict? asks Robin. Maybe. You think she ran away? I don't know, he says, tipping the last of his coffee into his mouth. All I can tell you is that if I were her, I wouldn't have waited this long. Robin fidgets with the salt grinder. What do we know so far? Dita, that's my brother, and Mahrit said she was supposed to be sleeping at a friend's house. They trusted the girl's family. They belonged to the same church. They only realized Marika was gone when they arrived to collect her and she wasn't there. Hadn't been there at all. The family said Marika hadn't been feeling well after school and called off the sleepover. They assumed her parents knew. So she's been missing since Friday afternoon? Her mouth goes dry. It was a long time to be missing, and every hour they wasted cooled the trail. It's been almost 36 hours, says de Villiers, rubbing his scalp with his knuckles. His anxiety creases his brow. She could be on the other side of the world by now. If Marika was in another country, they had close to no hope of finding her. Blom is checking flights, passenger lists, airport footage, border control. He's also got a team kicking down doors in the city, premises of previous offenders. Robin's stomach clenches. She bats away the picture of a 15-year-old girl being restrained in a dirty flat somewhere in downtown Johannesburg. And a search? Susman asks. Kaya's taking care of that. A dry search? For now, says Devil, and his face darkens. Then we'll get the divers in. Why? Susman puts down the salt and looks the captain in the eyes. Please, he says to her, as if she is the one who gets to decide who lives and who dies. Please. What could she say? She was just a damaged woman with a dry mouth. Robin, de Villiers says, not breaking eye contact. Is she alive? At that moment, it feels like the people around them are frozen in time, and only the two of them exist. You can't ask me that. I am asking you. 
I don't know if she's alive, says Robin. If you had to say... Susman looks at the captain, not blinking. Don't get your hopes up. De Villiers closes his eyes and hunches over in relief. Thank God. I don't know, she said. It's probably nothing. Believe me, he reaches for his wallet. It's something. On the way out, Kaya calls and Devil puts him on speakerphone. More girls are missing, the sergeant says. Two more girls. De Villiers' mouth pulls down at the corners. What do they have in common? We don't know yet, says Kaya, working on it. Work harder, says de Villiers. Yes, Captain. Extend the search and get the divers in. Rivers and lakes, he says. Is alive always better than dead? Susman asks as they speed on the highway on their way to Marika's parents' house. She says it out loud, but really, she's talking to herself. She can't help picturing a terrified teen somewhere far from home. What the hell is that supposed to mean? asks de Villiers. It depends on where she is, what's happening to her. They drive to Devil's brother's home in the east of Johannesburg. In the suburb they visit, the front walls are low or non-existent. Not like Josie, where the homes are barricaded by brick walls and barbed wire. The houses in the quiet neighborhood are run down, and cars and playsets rust, sinking into brown gardens. Dieter's home is neat, though. The garden is well-maintained, and the house has been recently painted. I often ask myself why I fought so hard to survive, says Robin, as she looks out of the window. De Villiers keeps quiet as he turns off the ignition, eyes trained on the narrow, tarred road. I would have chosen death over the attack, she said. Why did I fight so hard? It's not a question either of them can answer today, not with three girls missing. Machrit de Villiers, Marika's mother, greets them at the door, wearing a well-worn apron over her old-fashioned floral dress that reaches her ankles. The house is scented by the banana bread baking in the oven, which she serves to them, powdered with icing sugar, like a light dusting of snow. Thank you, Machrit says. Thank you so much for everything you're doing to find her. Of course, says de Villiers. Your husband isn't here? asks Robin. He's at church says Machrit, wringing the tea towel in her lap, praying for Marika's safe return. Have you remembered anything else? asks Devil. I've told you everything I know, she says. De Villiers keeps quiet, letting her words linger until the woman shifts uncomfortably in her chair. She hasn't touched her plate. Susman stands up and excuses herself, asking if she can use the bathroom. Instead, she finds Marika's bedroom. It's as pretty as a chocolate box. Teddy bears, flowers, pink in every possible shade. The innocence, or the illusion of innocence, is almost stifling. Susman opens the dresser drawer, the closet door, looks under the mattress. Then she lies flat on the beige carpet, clicks on her penlight, and searches underneath the bed. There's nothing there. But lying on the floor, she's at the perfect angle to catch a glimpse of something flashing silver from beneath the dresser. She crawls over and cranes her neck to see what's there. A razor blade is taped to the chipboard. She doesn't touch it. Taped next to it is an artful black-and-white photograph of a woman with protruding ribs and hip bones. She darts into the guest bathroom and flushes the toilet, washes her hands. When she looks up, de Villiers is there. We've got to go, he says. Another girl is gone. 
devil is pale and silent on the way back to the city. You're angry, says Susman. I would be too. He jabs the button of the car radio to turn it on, then immediately turns it off again. He grinds his teeth. If it was my daughter. Yes, says Robin. You wouldn't be hiding in a church. His knuckle bones shine through his skin as he clutches the steering wheel. She clears her throat. I found a razor blade in Marika's room. I was wondering what was taking you so long. He stops at a red light and swears in Afrikaans. A razor? Why? Suicide? My guess is she was self-harming, cutting herself. She's not like that, says Devil. Like what? She's a good girl. Good girls hurt themselves too. Devil's phone rings. The ringtone is classical music. Baroque? And Susman eyes him, then answers. It's Kaya. Usually, he's cheerful, and she's never known him not to be happy when she's on a case. But his voice is heavy with dread. Another girl? asks Susman. Another girl, says the sergeant. Also, they found something at Zoo Lake. Susman puts her hand to her stomach, which suddenly aches. Zoo Lake, she says to de Villiers. He grimaces and turns the car around. The clouds are pink by the time they reach the lake. There is police tape cordoning off the area, and the sight of it snapping in the breeze gives Susman goosebumps. Five girls, she thinks. Five girls gone. They approach the officer managing the scene, thinking the worst and are relieved to learn that it's a phone that's been found, not a body. A clue, instead of a corpse. Susman glances up at the darkening sky, muttering a prayer to a god in whom she no longer believes. Fits the description of Marika's phone, says the officer. We're sending it to Betty now. Zinzi Mbete was their go-to tech genius. She wasn't always easy to find, but if anyone could recover the data on a drowned phone, she could. You're sure there's no body? asks de Villiers. Yebo, says the officer. He also looks relieved. Maybe he has a daughter at home. In the distance, a homeless man sits under a tree watching them. Robin strolls up to him. He stinks of body odor and sweet wine, matches and cigarettes. Hi, she says. You've been here all day? Yesterday? He won't look at her. De Villiers approaches and hands him 50 rand, with which he seems unimpressed. Robin pulls out her wallet and peels off another hundred. He stuffs it into his jacket pocket. This better be worth it, she tells the man, or I'm taking that back. Finally, he looks up at her, his eyes stained by too much booze and living on the streets. There was a girl, he says, and they both stop breathing. I thought it was a boy. Black pants, black hood. But when I called her, I saw her face. Why did you call her? She threw her phone in the lake. I told her she should have given it to me. I need a phone. Then she ran away. Who was with her? Asked Susman. A man. I didn't see his face. He was in a car. Which way did they go? Asks Devil. Up there, says the man, gesturing up the road running up the slope towards the main road. De Villiers takes his phone out and scrolls through some photos. He shows the man the picture of Mareka. That's her. You're certain, asks Robin. Witnesses are notoriously unreliable. The lake is at least 30 feet away from the tree, and this alcoholic looks half blind. 
The man nods. It was her. I know people. Back at the deserted station, de Villiers switches the flickering lights on and pins the pictures of the five girls to the wall over a roughly sketched map of Greater Johannesburg. According to Blom, there was no evidence they had been taken out of the country. So they're being held here, in someone's house or basement. The word basement made her skin crawl. They stare at the wall. The girls were all around the same age, but that's where the similarity ended. There was no common skin color or hairstyle. They went to different schools, belonged to various clubs, and had no hobbies in common. The phones of the other four girls had not yet been found. There has to be a connection, says Susman. It could be random, says Devil, but you can see by the look on his face that he doesn't buy it. Kidnapping five random girls over 48 hours, says Susman. Not likely. Not unless he had help. De Villiers shrugs. Maybe he had help. At 2 a.m., Devil's mobile chirruped with an email alert. Zinzi Mbete had sent him everything she had found on Mareka's phone. He opened up his laptop, and together they combed through the data which he had retrieved. There was over a thousand photos of friends, flowers, and pets. Yes, sis. Young people take a lot of photos, mumbles de Villiers, then rubs his dry eyes and sighs as if he has the weight of the world on his shoulders. The text messages, emails, and Facebook account had all been deleted or lost to water damage, but the names and details of the apps were recovered. Snapchat, Twitter, Instagram, Wafer. What's Wafer? asks Susman, and de Villiers shrugs. The icon is a pink bathroom scale. They access the application via Chrome on the laptop and log in with Marika's details. Her dashboard loads and they see her username, Candy Skull, and numbers. Previous weight, 38 kilograms. Current weight, 32 kilograms. Goal weight, 24 kilograms. Ultimate goal weight, 21 kilograms. On the board to the right of the numbers are pictures of skeletal-looking women, jutting collarbones and xylophone ribs. What the hell is this? Thinspo, says Susman. It looks like a pro-Anna app. De Villiers's face is blank. It's an app that brings anorexics together. They can share numbers and tips. She clicks through the support forum. Names like Hungry Hippo and Cal Counter come up. Candy Skull, Marika doesn't comment much. Robin looks away from the screen and up at the wall with the five girls' faces pinned to it. They do have something in common, says Robin. Look how thin they all are. The witness said Marika looked like a boy. Susman clicks the group's icon, where private chats are possible. There is only one group chat there with seven members. Candy Skull, Coffee Hips and Bones, all cut up, thin skin, slow suicide. Anna Coach, Bonesies. They have playful icons and lines beneath them. Count my ribs, in recovery. The generation of lost girls. Nothing tastes as good as skinny feels. Her pulse picks up. This is it, she says. This is what they have in common. Robin's eyes track up the pictures of the girls again. She clicks to read the chat, but the thread has been deleted. Devil grabs his phone. I'll get a court order. It's almost 4 a.m., says Robin. The judge is going to hate you. It won't be the first time, he says. 
Susman picks up her phone too and dials the number she sees on the screen. It takes 15 minutes and plenty of threats to get through to someone who can help her at Wafer. We don't give out that kind of information, says the American. One of the reasons our app is so popular is that you don't need an account to join. We don't ask for any personal details. But if I were to give you the usernames, says Robin, you'll be able to tell me where they're based? Technically, yes, we could. But it's against our policy. We respect the privacy of every member. If Susman could slap the man, she would. She pictured him sitting in a brightly colored beanbag somewhere in Silicon Valley, brand new night cortados on his feet, popping Adderall and slurping a large iced coffee. It's against your policy, says Susman, anger vibrating through her. Yes, ma'am, he says. Sorry, I can't help. She looks over at de Villiers, who is still speaking to the sleepy judge. He doesn't seem to be having much luck. She knows the link is tenuous. Her jaw begins to ache. She spits venom into the phone. Listen here, you bleeding edge startup tech wizard asshole. There are five girls missing. They were all members of a private group on your stupid bloody app. If it weren't for your software, they'd probably all be home, safely tucked up in their beds. Err. We're in the process of obtaining a court order. Let me tell you, when I get it and these girls are safe, I'm going to go after you. I'm going to go after you with everything I've got. I'll find everything you're hiding. I'll strip you and your tech bare and lay your bastard bones out to dry. De Villiers gives her a nervous look. And then I'm going to go to the press with this story and tell them how you wouldn't help the authorities with the investigation and how you and your company prey on vulnerable young girls and exploit their disease for profit. And God help me, if anything happens to these girls, I'll... Okay, the American says, okay. Do you need their addresses? That's it, these seven people? Robin hadn't finished her tirade. She's caught mid-rebuke. Okay, he says. I'll get Jeff to send them through to you now. Thank you, she says. Then, as an afterthought, tell Jeff to hurry up. De Villiers is looking at her. Her phone pings with the data. Cancel that request for a court order, says Devil. Make it a search warrant for the following addresses. They triangulate the software developer's information with the homes of the missing girls. Five match up. Who are the other two? Asks Devil. Anna Coach and Thinskin. I'm guessing... That Anna Coach is the ringleader, says Susman. She seems the most assertive on the forum. Girls go to her for advice. I wouldn't be surprised if she's organized some kind of meetup. It's a flat in Rosebank, says de Villiers. No basement. They're both quiet for a moment. She could have drugged them, says Susman. They both think she could have killed them, but they don't say it out loud. Do you want to call your brother? No, he shakes his head. I don't want to get their hopes up. They jump into the captain's old car and hurtle through the darkness. Robin's heart and lungs are rushing, and she can hear her anxiety thudding in her ears. They park illegally in a one-way street and then climb out onto the silent sidewalk, looking up at the apartment block with generous balconies. Time to go, he whispers. Robin can feel how pale she is. Her fingers tingle. Devil looks at her. You okay? You want to stay in the car? No, she says, swallowing hard. No way. They ride the elevator to the seventh floor. The light inside number 78 is on. De Villiers wants to take them by surprise, so he grabs the fire extinguisher hanging on the stairwell and bashes down the door. 
They run in, guns in hand, shouting to get down. They expect to find the girls drugged or bound or both, but the flat is empty. There's a sound from the balcony. De Villiers and Susman move quickly and quietly to the large glass sliding door. The sun is just starting to rise, and the early morning breeze blows the thin curtain that separates them from the figure standing outside on the high terrace. Devil slips through the gap of the billowing voile and points his gun at the silhouette. Freeze, he says. Robin is right behind him. The silhouette turns out to be an unarmed woman in smart navy blue pajamas who looks at them defiantly. Robin catches sight of the second person too late. He's pointing a Glock G40 at de Villiers. In his other arm, he clutches a silver laptop. Devil, Susman shouts. When she was trained and fit, she would have given a more useful direction like 90 degrees or gun, but her instincts aren't as sharp as they used to be. All she can manage is to shout her friend's name, one of her only dear friends, but it's too little, too late. The gunshot is so loud in the near silent night that it shocks her whole body and it feels she has mercury running in her veins, her heart pumping hot and cold at the same time. In slow motion, she turns to look at de Villiers. She expects to see him clutch his chest and fall, but instead the woman's head comes apart and the red mist sprays on the wall behind her. The man hadn't been aiming at devil at all. He had his gun trained on the woman all along. By the time Susman has dragged her eyes back to face the smoking barrel in the dawn light, the man had leapt to his death, smashing into the concrete down below, just a couple of hundred feet from Devil's car. Susman and de Villiers are both trembling when they get back to the vehicle. Backup and forensics are on their way. At first, they lean against the side, gathering their thoughts. It's difficult to think straight when your body is in the biochemical aftermath of shock. Susman feels numb and alert at the same time, and she can't stop moving. The morning light paints the skyscraper silver. Suicide pact? Looks like it, says de Villiers. He has some barely dry blood spray on his neck and shirt, but Susman doesn't comment on it. For a gut-wrenching moment, she had thought she had lost him. The rest of the apartment had been eerily empty, with no sign of the girls. Kaya delivered the shattered laptop to Betty, but there wasn't much hope of getting anything off it except blood and metallic dust. Every hour the girls were missing meant less hope of them being found alive. After hauling the carbon monoxide-scented air deep into their lungs, they open the doors and get in. The other address, says Susman, buckling herself in. The seventh address. Thin skin? They speed towards the house in Orange Grove, not knowing what they'll discover there. They find the street, a tapered road pocked with holes. Litter swirls and dust devils around the house, which is squat and needs its roof tiles repaired. De Villiers and Susman are still riding the adrenaline way from the gunshots when they creep onto the property and look through the windows. The rooms appear empty. Susman and Devil look at one another. He wants to bash the door down, but they don't have a warrant. Instead, he picks the lock, which is just as illegal but leaves less evidence. He squeezes the knob and turns it so slowly you hardly hear the spring moving and the bolt gives way. Guns drawn, they edge inside. Susman can hear her whispered breath, and her stomach is aching again. She wonders if there is a basement. Robin Susman doesn't want to find five dead girls. She doesn't want to find five living girls either, if they've been brutalized. As it is, she can't sleep.
her midnight mind is a spool of bad memories. On the cream carpet in the lounge, they find the bodies. Five compact frames, lying beside each other, motionless, as the rising sun slices through a gap in the drawn curtains. Susman watches them, her mouth desiccated, as Devil checks the rest of the house and comes back showing empty palms. They holster their weapons and Davilius coughs to clear his throat. Girls, he says in his gruff way. Girls, wake up. One or two of them groan. Another stretches, eyes still closed. When the blonde girl catches sight of the strangers in the room, she crawls out of her sleeping bag and onto the sofa, long-limbed and painfully thin. She looks skittish, ready to run. Wake up, she yells at the others, and their eyes shoot open. We're here to help you, says Susman. Marika looks at Davilius. Worm? The captain is not used to being called uncle. He looks uncomfortable and then smiles at his niece. You're safe now, he says. What do you mean? asks one of the girls. Who are you? We're here to take you home, says Susman. They all frown and complain. We don't want to go home, says Marika. We all chose to be here. Your children, says Devil. You don't get to decide. You belong with your parents, not some bad people you met on the internet. I'm not going home, says the blonde girl. No way. They're not bad people, says Marika. They're helping us. Susman glares at her. How? They're teaching us how to be models. They're going to take us to New York. They've already taken some girls over there, and they say it's amazing. Sally is our coach and agent. She's organizing special passports for us. Clem is a photographer, and he's shooting our portfolios. I know this is difficult to hear, kids, says Susman. But Sally is not a modeling agent, and Clem is not a photographer and I'll bet those aren't their real names either. They're good people, said the blonde girl. Devil's lips are white. He took photos of you. What kind of photos? Marika's nostrils flare, and she crosses her arms. Nothing bad, if that's what you're thinking. He's not like that. He's kind. Kinder than dad. Blom sends them a voice message. The team in Rosebank had identified the bodies as Celia and Aspion Burdal, a married couple from Norway. They're wanted in South Africa and other countries for dozens of counts of sexual exploitation of minors, human trafficking, and child pornography. We're going to take you to the station now and notify your parents, says Susman, picturing Marika's pretty room with the concealed razor blade and the photograph of jutting bones under paper skin. She looks at the scars on the girl's thin arms. The parents would want to punish their daughters for putting them through such hell, but Susman couldn't help feeling sorry for the girls. She saw the pain on their gaunt faces. Happy kids don't make themselves disappear. Happy kids don't commit slow suicide. What were they running away from? No, they all say. We don't want to go home. Wait for Sally to come back, says Marika. She'll explain everything. De Villiers takes a deep breath. Sally's not coming back, 